back to defining your success with Wacastin. On today's episode, I have a great guest for you, and with him, I will be discussing the importance of civility in the healthcare setting and the impact that this has on both patients and staff. So, why does civility matter in the workplace? Research was done by the Harvard Business Review and they found that 80% of recipients lost time worrying about the rudeness that they had received at work. 38% found that the quality of their work had reduced and 48% found that they were spending less time at work due to rudeness. 25% of people said they then were more likely to take out their anger and frustration on other service users. Staggeringly, the research also found that people who just witness incivility have a 20% decrease in their performance and are 50% less likely to help others. Evidently, a reduction in clinician performance will have an impact on patient outcomes. Today, I have the pleasure to be joined by emergency medicine consultant in the West Midlands and founder of Civility Saves Lives, Dr. Chris Turner. Chris is renowned both nationally and internationally for the work that he's done on civility in the healthcare setting. He did a TED talk four years ago on the subject and this has amassed over 140,000 views on YouTube. He has used this excellently as a platform to spread the word of civility in the healthcare setting and is now providing both workshops and keynote speeches on a worldwide setting. Hello Chris, thank you very much for joining me today and welcome on the show. Total pleasure, Wakas, and uh, obviously we've had a few minutes before this and drunk far too much coffee, and it's, it's all good. I'm hoping to not speak too fast. Oh, thank you so much for the coffee, Chris. The caffeine fuel really does help me through today. So just starting with our conversation, the first thing I wanted to ask you, Chris, was have you always been civil with other people at work? Good grief, no. <laughs> I, I mean, honest to God, um, nobody gets this stuff right all the time. And actually, it's a really important point because I, I worry about it when I'm on stage. I worry about it that I sound sanctimonious, that I'm saying we just need to be like this. The, the reality is that we work in extremely difficult circumstances. And sometimes we are pretty much overloaded. And sometimes we will not be the best version of ourselves. That is just a truth about being a human being. It's what we do with it afterwards that matters. Actually, it's what happens in front of it that matters as well. I mean, try not to be. I mean, if you get to the stage of under of believing that behaviour matters at a at an individual, a team, an organisational level, then for us in senior positions, then then it's incumbent upon us to try to be the best versions of ourselves but we're going to screw up. Everybody screws up. Once we have screwed up, if we recognise that we've screwed up, then the next thing that we need to do is deal with it. And I'm talking about dealing with it on two levels. One level is dealing with it internally. So I could beat myself up. I could scream and shout at myself internally. I could go, what the hell have you done, Chris? You absolute muppet. That doesn't really help. So internally, you have to have some compassion for yourself. You have to accept that things will go wrong. You will get stuff wrong. And that allows you to then move on. Because the next bit is you have to deal with this with the people that you have not been the best version of yourself with. 
and you have to go to those people and you have to spend time with them. You have to show contrition. You have to accept how they felt and your part in that and making them feel that way. And you have to try to be better next time. And, and you know, life is iterative. We get better and better and better at stuff if we work at it. And there's some really interesting evidence around this. And it's this. If you upset somebody else and you then go and apologise to them, they see you after the apology in a more positive light than they saw you before you upset them. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out there and offend people so that you can say, sorry, wackas. I don't, I don't think that's a particularly ethical perspective to take on this. But good grief, that's a great payoff. You know, you screw up and you go and apologise and people think, oh, Chris, isn't he lovely? Or wackas, isn't he lovely? Because, you know, he came and said sorry. You talk about humility, you know, in this as well. It's that accepting that sometimes we can do things wrong and accepting that we can speak to people in a manner that we shouldn't or do things that we, we shouldn't do. Do you think there is... What do you think is stopping, uh, you know, this culture of humility and accepting our failures in, in, in the healthcare system? And what is stopping people from approaching people to apologise and, and move on? Oh, probably there's a bit of hubris there, but also there's perfectionism. And this desire to be absolutely perfect about everything and struggling then to see that we may have been less than perfect in a situation, struggling to see that um, we may have left other people feeling distressed. And not being able to cope with that because we hold ourselves to such high standards. And for some people, for some people there is a massive leadership Achilles heel and it's this, not being able to say sorry. Some people just can't do it, it chokes them. But when you can say sorry, when you can own your own behaviour, when you can own to some extent, the consequences of your behaviour for other people, then that's just massively empowering. But we work in a system that says you must never make a mistake. And, and of course I get that because you, we make a mistake and people suffer. But we are going to make mistakes. You're going to make a mistake as a surgeon. I'm going to make a mistake as an emergency medicine consultant. I know that. To then crucify people who, who make a mistake rather than trying to learn from it, is to destroy the environment within which we could become better. And Suzette Woodward, um, who used to run the Sign Up to Safety campaign and um, who I massively commend to anybody who's, who's listening to this, Suzette's written a bunch of books on patient safety and I honestly think pa Suzette is the probably the foremost thinker about patient safety in the world. Um, she introduced the term never event. And if you speak to her, she says it, it is her single biggest regret in the context of healthcare safety that she introduced this expression because people ran with never event. It's become a, a cudgel to, to hit people with. 
it is it's used to say this is inexcusable except for they are also statistical certainties never events will happen wrong site surgery will happen now there's lots of stuff we can do to stop that happening to try to mitigate for that but when you do a million operations things that happen one in a million times happen and the problem with the culture that evolved around the never event stuff is that we got into a situation where if something bad happens there's a whole bunch of who's to blame and it's completely the wrong starting place with with the never event obviously it's often linked to like swiss cheese model we're taught it in our, in our medical schools and we often get that link to like the airline industry. Uh, yep. Would you say it's not probably represented necessarily? Ah, uh, no. I okay. So 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 this is a properly messy space. Um, people look at healthcare, and they say, "Yeah, it's like the airline industry." Well, it's not, and it is. There are bits of healthcare that have some significant similarities with um, with the airline industry. For example, anaesthetists, when they're, when they're giving the anaesthetic and they're in their anaesthetic room and they are doing all that stuff in there, there are similarities to an airline cockpit. But that starts falling apart once the patient's on the table. And it absolutely has very little relevance to my world. So there, there's some lovely work done by, oh, that's really annoying, it's gone for me, but I'll remember in a minute. There, there's some lovely work done that says that you can split healthcare, clinical healthcare environments into three distinct groups. And the three distinct groups are, oh, by the way, it's Vincent and Amalberti who did this work. The three groups are ultra safe, and those are linear processes. So the giving of chemotherapy should be linear. If you have the skills to do it, you should be able to follow the recipe and it should happen. And you go in a straight line. And process in that setting is more important than people as long as people have the skills. Then you've got highly reliable. Operating theatres are highly reliable. There are a whole bunch of things that should happen exactly the same way every time but there are areas where you have to be able to bend and flex and do things differently. Because you know that when, once you start operating on somebody, the anatomy might well be different to what you expect. And the problems are almost always a wee bit different to what you expect. Even though you've thought about the problems, you don't know exactly what's coming in your direction. And in those settings, we want the process to be as good as it can be. And we simultaneously want to have people able to bend and flex as they need to. So people in process are equally important in that setting. And then there's the third setting, which is basically, some people would see it as being chaos, but, but it's unpredictable. Complex situations. Yeah the, the, yeah, the unpredictability of, for example, being on take for anybody. I mean, you see it most in the emergency department. But for anybody who's on take, you don't know what's coming in through the door. You're constantly making decisions about what the right thing to do is. You might be able to write this down in a straight line way, but it's complete rubbish. Because 
you know, as you're walking from one patient to the next, somebody hands you an ECG or a blood gas and they ask you to make a comment on that. And then you've got to make a decision, moral, ethical, professional decision about do you go to that other patient that you've just had this handed to you about or do you go to the patient that you're going to go to? And these decisions are, these are multifactorial decisions and we are constantly splitting and going in different directions. Now, there's a small area of that second group where the airline industry stuff works reasonably well, and that's the anaesthetic bit. But once we get beyond that, what we're doing in healthcare is orders of magnitude more complex than, than the airline pilot stuff. And and most most of the airline guys who, who talk about this accept that, you know, that but that's a starting place. It's a starting place to think about this. It is not the answer, though. It's not the answer for almost any of us because our world is different. Yeah. And we look at the work that Sidney Decker did with the Just Culture, and he talks about the systems-based approach against, you know, the individuals and how we don't focus on the individuals and there is that blame culture and we don't protect that individual as well. And it kind of brings me into the work that you've been doing uh, with Civility Saves Lives and just all the work you've been doing with your talks as well. And it'd be great to obviously talk about that about going forward. Um, just for ourselves as junior leaders, a lot of people who may be listening to this, how did you get into this work before we actually um, talk about it? If, if you've been around a long time, you might have heard about the mid-staffs. Uh, mid-staffs is one of those NHS healthcare scandals. Uh, I was a clinical lead for emergency medicine in mid-staffs when it happened, or rather when it was reported upon. And... It was a harrowing, fascinating, and exceptionally formative time. As I began to understand the interaction between the system and individuals. Um, to cut an extremely long story short, uh, after a couple of years at working in mid-staffs and uh, working in a really, really difficult environment, um, I along with many other people actually, but I had a breakdown, uh, ended up leaving mid-staffs, ended up going to work in another organisation and then about 12 years ago I moved to University of Sosa Coventry and Warwickshire and you find your tribe. Yeah. And when I got to UHCW I found my tribe. Um, I was really interested in governance. Uh, I still am. I'm not a governance lead anymore but I see governance as a way of improving quality. But governance means understanding what's going on in your department. It's not just about pointing the finger at people. And basically, I became involved in a little bit of the positivist stuff that, that's kicking about. So Adrian Plunkett's Learning from Excellence. Adrian and Emma Plunkett started Learning from Excellence in Birmingham Children's Hospital. Um, and, you know, if... If you want to be good at something, you don't become, you know, the best golfer in the world by studying the 10 worst golfers of all time. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to be good at something, you look at people who are good. And, and that's what Adrian was doing. He was starting this whole, this whole, let's look at the positive stuff. At the same time as he was doing that, so, and I know Adrian, um, Joe Farmer, who is one of our F2, who is an F1 with us, actually, he he came to talk to me one day and we were just talking about something that happened at the theatre. He'd been on call. He was 
F2 at the time. He'd been on call, he'd been on call, and he'd gone to the theatre with this Reg. His Reg was brilliant. He said she was great. Really could rely on her. She was always there. She went. To th- they went to theatre and said couldn't understand what happened. They went to theatre. Consultant was in a crappy place. Consultant was criticising her from the off. Um, consultant got more and more hacked off as she made more and more mistakes. And eventually they got to this stage where the consultant just took over. And I had just been reading some Christine Porath and Amir Erez work around this about what happens when we're in an environment where people don't support us, where people criticise us, how we become over arouse how we her performance drops off and joe and i thought that we would talk about it and I, literally i thought it would be a single talk i thought i'd go on a stage i'd talk about this and it'd be like an educational thing yeah. you know I might, you know i might as well be talking about upper limb injuries and i thought that would be that and it very much wasn't people were interested people wanted to talk about it and we got into it and then it really just gathered momentum. It gathered momentum. And, you know, from having been through things like mid-staffs, I was in a position to look at where I've seen people's performance drop off. I've seen my own performance drop off. You know, I, I am somebody who gets a bit of performance anxiety, um, which is weird. I've given TED Talks and, you know, I stood on stage and talked to literally thousands of people. But I get anxious. And... If people push me harder in that set in that setting, I know that my performance just drops off. Um, and if I'm too anxious, I can't even do the stuff. And you know, I had this experience a few weeks ago. I, I stood up on stage in the front row. The Princess Royal is sitting there. Well, that was enough to get me. I'm not a massive <laughs> royalist, but that was enough to to get my anxiety past the point where I could perform at my peak. And I did what I've learned to do in that setting: explain it to people till my heart rate came down. And I could deal with it. And that's what I did. And then I managed to do my talk. And it just it just came together, this stuff. So that it turns out that there is a massive appetite in healthcare for people who want to be better. Who'd have thunk it, eh? Honestly. But they want to be better by learning where you can get edge. And one of the ways you get edge is how you treat each other because it's relational. People don't, if I want to make a good decision in the emergency department, I can only make a good decision using the information that people have given me. If I am too bloody scary for people to talk to me, they don't tell me stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm a squat, beardy, Scottish, <laughs> middle-aged man. My accent to some people sounds like I want to stab them. Yeah. Now, I don't feel like that. I mean, I might be full of the love. but I've, I've, well face, Chris. Yeah, well, 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 yeah, but... But learning that's important, learning how people see you and then moderating it so that they share information. Because if I don't know something, I can't take it into account in a decision I'm making, You often with or about a patient. And I like how you take that accountability, that responsibility to actually do this work as well. And I think for myself um, and many listening who you know, speak at conferences and events, it's nice to hear that you still get nervous as well doing it as well. Oh, yeah. Even as an excellent, you know, as an excellent speaker. We were talking a little bit before about, and I think you mentioned it in TED about bandwidth or reduced um, yeah. ability to do work um, due to incivility. I just wanted you to just maybe yeah, expand sure. a little bit on that. Okay, so 
I'll give you where the sort of the state of my head around this is at the moment, and I suppose I think about this more than probably most other people because I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And what I think is happening is this: when we perceive somebody as treating us in an uncivil way, and they may not be intending this, but that's by the by when we perceive it. What happens is our brain interprets that as potential threat. And when our brain perceives potential threat, it starts to steal cognitive resources. It starts to divert how we think from the logical to something much more primal, which is, do I need to get ready to rumble? Do I need to get ready to get out of here? And what happens is that our bandwidth, our ability to think creatively, logically, and it's so important in healthcare to be able to think creatively because we're always bending and flexing in these situations trying to work out how do we make this happen. When we get our cognitive resources stolen by the bit of our primal brain that's going to get ready to rumble, then we just don't perform as well because we can't think as well. It's literally that simple. And it doesn't matter whether you are the recipient of incivility or whether you just witness incivility, it still has an impact. It's less if you witness it, for most people, on average, but it still has an impact. And I think what's happening is we're becoming, we're primed to get out of the situation and it's the beginning of a fight or flight response. It doesn't feel like fight or flight, it just feels uncomfortable. And then we just don't perform so well. Now, we don't think that we don't perform so well. There's a lovely study by Dan Katz about anaesthetists, anaesthetists and surgeons, where, you know, he, the surgeons either have an anaesthetist, uh, sorry, this, the anaesthetists have a surgeon who's a bit rude, and it could be the other way around. I mean, this isn't about anaesthetists and surgeons. This is just what you get money for. And the surgeons could have been uh, a wee bit rude or completely lovely. And what happens is the, the surgeons who have the wee bit rude uh, sorry, the anaesthetists who have the wee bit rude surgeon don't perform as well as the guys who have the lovely surgeon. Alongside it, they asked afterwards, so did you have the rude surgeon or did you have the polite surgeon? And people got it right. They knew if they'd had this slightly rude surgeon. And they weren't phenomenally rude, they're just slightly rude. Uh, you know, come on, come on, the last guys are quicker than you. Get the patients on the table, guys. Come on, time is money. It's just that kind of level of stuff. Just a gentle bit of harassment. And they knew if they'd had those rude surgeons. And then Dan Katz asked the kicker question, and it's this. Do you think it had an impact on your performance? And they said, no, of course not. I'm a professional. But the measured impact was that it did. And that's that thin end of the wedge. We think we compensate for it. The evidence is we don't. I mean, we're compensating a bit, probably. Yeah, I mean, look, looking at it from a trainee's perspective, it, it's hard to look at it in a quantitative way, but if you ask most trainees, if you're operating in ENT, say you're taking a tonsil out as an SHO, and the consultant comes on your shoulder and says, oh, we need to hurry up, at least it says, how long are you going to be? Does the question, how long yes. are you going to be? Do you think that has a negative impact on your, your operating? And for myself, overseeing my junior colleagues who might be doing tonsils for the second or third time, the impact it has on these people, you, you see it yeah. first hand, you see it first hand, how differently they might perform. So I think that the impact it has is related 
to the reputation of the person asking the question. If you have somebody who you know to be super lovely, really supportive, asking you a question about something, you might just see that as a question. If you have somebody who's hostile, aggressive, who has a reputation that's negative, then they could ask the same question. They could even ask it in exactly the same way, but you will interpret it differently because our reputation determines how our words are understood an awful lot of the time. So the answer is sometimes. Sometimes it will have a negative impact on folk. I was speaking to a colleague the other day there, and she, she junior doctor, um, she was suturing up um, a patient downstairs and the, the boss turned up in the room. So she had a medical student, she had the boss, she had a nursing student and she had somebody else in the room. And she said, and I forgot how to suture. You know, <laughs> and I, I totally get that. It's, it's, um, it's really well known. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, the Yerkes-Dodson effect. And basically what it boils down to is it's arousal and performance or stress and performance. The more aroused we are, the worse our performance. And what happens is some environments are really massively arousing. You know, you can take somebody who's a brilliant surgeon, absolutely fantastic in theatre, bring them into the emergency department with, which goes like a bloody fair, mm. and ask them to do something. And their performance is not going to be what it would be when they're in the right environment for them. They might have to be in the ED to do it. But it's your environment has an impact on your performance. And when we are over-arousing people, their performance drops off. And there are many different ways we can reduce that arousal. One of the ways that's actually really useful is humour. Gentle humour, not humour poking at people. This is, if you're, if you're going to make, if you're going to have humour in these clinical settings, not at the expense of other people, that's just cruel particularly if it's down a hierarchy, the humour really has to be self-deprecating or just something that's just funny full stop. Um, but not at the expense of other folk. But humour, laughter, laughter dissipates a lot of our stress. When, when we laugh at something, we feel, we feel better and able to think again afterwards. Really good for us, laughter. I mean, just obviously spending a bit of time with you today, I think one of the other things was just showing an interest in people. Um, I've, I've been on placements where a lot of people speak about me, about my life, or anything, you know, apart away from work. And they won't know anything about me four, five, six months into the yeah. into the profession. And it was quite nice to see yourself in, paying an interest and show, showing an interest in those people around you as well. Yeah, uh, that, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we all want to be seen. All human beings want to be seen. Um, being ignored is really uncomfortable. And yet, investing in people takes time. Now, we were lucky. We, we had an hour before we sat down to do this. We had a coffee and we talked about life and stuff that was going on. And I massively appreciated it. It was a lovely, lovely bit of my day. Yesterday was the first day of New Doctors. So if anybody listening to this knows, knows we're, we're in August. Yeah. 
And in our department, I, I was working last night, and we had literally there must have been 20, 25 new doctors between the acute medical team and the emergency medicine team and the other teams who are coming in and around. And I would love to have a relationship where I know these guys. But in the time that I've been doing the job I've been doing in Coventry, we've had 1,400 junior doctors move through the department. And that's fatiguing. You can't remember people. You have this thing, no, you're going to have this happen to you. Um, and all the senior guys will recognise this. People come up and they chat to you and you have no <laughs> idea who they are. You kind of know their face, but you think, maybe I operated on you. Maybe I worked with you. Maybe we had a fight. Maybe you're from Marks and Spencers. I have no bloody idea because, because we can't hold more than about 150, 200 people in our heads. And... It's that thing at school, isn't it? You know, where you remember the kids who are older than you, you don't remember the kids who are younger than you. And when we're senior, people remember us. And we, for the, you know, the best I, world in the world don't remember. I think with a &E it's different. You get such a large scale of doctors coming through. Don't yeah. You? yeah, I think, um, I guess it's more when you're, you know, you might be put on a post with a consultant. You, know, you yeah. spend a lot of time with them. Um, but it's true, it gets more and more difficult, doesn't it? And I guess it's, it's trying enough trying to remember everybody. Yes. And knowing what our capabilities are. I mean, we talked about perfection, didn't we, as well? Yeah. We've mentioned it before in the podcast about, is it a positive thing to aim for that as well? But yeah. just trying to be better, trying to engage with people while trying to. Yeah. It's an interesting one, because if someone's going to operate on me, I want a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is that the perfectionism is it's the enemy of good enough. It's the enemy of highly performing systems. It's not the right place, most of all. And yet, you know, if you know if someone's going to operate on my brain, I want a bloody perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to choose when we're perfectionists. I think we need. There are moments when we go, yeah. no, this is a time when this has to be just right, and the rest of the time, perhaps it's enough to be satisfied with good enough. There, there's a guy who he was my entry drug into all this stuff. A guy called Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz, professor in New York, talks about satisfizers and maximizers. Maximizers want the absolute best out of everything. Satisfizers go, hey, that's good enough. Yeah. Satisfizers are much happier. Yeah. Yeah. Maximizers spend their lives going, could it have been a wee bit better. Now, we want that when we're thinking about our clinical interactions, because that's how we get better. But you can be like that everywhere, because it's just not good for you. Don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and uh, we're coming more towards the end of our interview. Just a couple of questions I wanted to ask. Firstly, do you see yourself as a success? Well, um, I've never really thought about that. Um, I'm pretty happy. That's good, yeah. <laughs> um, I love that I chose to do medicine. I, I, I Medicine such an old man thing to say but medicine is an absolute privilege mm. being able to be with other human beings and help them through what are sometimes the worst moments of their lives is something that I, I never fail to be moved by as a concept am I a success well I'm a success compared to what the school told me that I would never get into medicine and that I <laughs> that I uh, that I, that I didn't have the academic ability to be a doctor and I suppose I'm a success um, 
compared to you know when I failed a whole bunch of exams when I was at university five out of six in one <laughs> setting um, and had to reset a year and you know I suppose by the sort of measures of success I certainly civility saves life stuff I, I get to wander the world and talk to people about that um, but the thing I'm probably I would regard the biggest definition of success is are the kids uh, and you know and that that they are happy and that, that somehow or other they've managed to sort of grow up in a positive light and that that would be the biggest bit of success. I mean, professionally, I, I suppose I'm a success, and I, and you know I, I'm massively privileged. But you know, there's a lot more to life than just the professional part of it. Hundred percent. I think that's so important to realise and remember with with medicine as well. Yeah. I think without that, you've had a massive impact positively on many people, including myself. Um, I, I'm very it's quite touched. a privilege for me to even, even meet you um, in the situation. And I think for everyone, it's, it's important that we do say thank you to yeah. you. And just last question, the podcast is Defining Your Successor. It kind of ties in with this, and I think you have mentioned it, but what is uh, the definition of success to you? Um, and okay. Um, peace with myself, being at peace with myself, and I think a lot of us are not at peace with ourselves, and that's driven partly through perfectionism. Um partly through working in a system that doesn't serve us the way that we need the system to serve us. Um, and having the balance. Now, there are times when the balance is impossible. It's just a work-work balance for a lot of the time. But having the balance um, and feeling that I am there for the people that I love in my life and also that I am able to do a good job when it comes to to the medical part of it. And, you know, all of that comes with investment in yourself over a long period of time. And nobody gets that right all the time. And the, the, the balance changes at points in life. So for me, that's what success is. Absolutely. That's a lovely answer, Chris. And uh, thank you for actually sharing that with us. Um, from my perspective and for a lot of our listeners, it's great to see what a grounded person you are. And I just wanted to say thank you for spending some time to actually speak to me. It really has been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a total delight, Wacker. It's yeah. really been a lovely morning. Thanks, everyone, for listening in today to Defining Your Success. I'll be back in two weeks' time when I am joined by the multi-award-winning executive in health and care and the inclusivity champion for West Yorkshire, Fatima Khan Shah. I look forward to speaking to you then.